Welcome, everybody, to the Flashpoint Podcast. Uh, my name is Owen Higgins. I am your host, as always. Uh, today, uh, just like our last one, actually, we are joined by the journalist Jack Crosby, uh, who is live in Ukraine. Uh, last time that we spoke to Jack, uh, almost a week ago, about six days ago, he was in Kiev. Uh, now he is in the city of Kharkiv, uh, which is kind of like a Russian border city. I, th- I think it's about maybe 10 or 15 miles away from the Russian border. And obviously, uh, you know, the situation on the border of Ukraine and Russia is quite tense at the moment. And uh, there, there have been some unverified reports that the Kharkiv may be the target of some action. Uh, like none of that stuff has really been verified enough to really report out like it's uh, actually going to happen, but given the, given where Kharkiv is and where, uh, the troop buildups have been, it's, it's certainly not out of the question. Um, so Jack, uh, thanks for, thanks for joining us again. Um, and have been enjoying your work. Uh, you know, kind of excited to hear what things are like there and how it's, it's been different for you uh, than it was in Kiev. And, you know, even though that was just six days ago, and that is a short period of time, a lot has happened since then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, you're, I'm still coming through okay, right? Y- yep, yep, you're great. Sweet. Okay, um, yeah, I mean, so I, I'm, in, I'm in Kharkiv now, which is uh, Ukraine's uh, second biggest city, I think. Um, so it's still in a, like, very large European uh, metropolitan area. Um, at the moment, so the experience here is is pretty similar to to what it was in Kiev, actually. Um, you know, I was I was just walking around uh, on the street today, and I, I went out to the um, Kharkiv Museum of uh, of Fine Art and went through and saw some paintings and and had just sort of like a nice, very normal, lovely afternoon in the city. Um, and my experience here has been similar to Kiev, like very, very sort of normal. Um, you get the sense that there's obviously no sort of like overt panic, um, despite the, uh, despite the new sort of like reports and warnings that invasion imminent, um, Kharkiv may be the target, like, et cetera, et cetera, stuff like that that was coming out of, um, Newsweek and CNN and, and a lot of, uh, places just, just a few minutes ago tonight. Um, I, I think the Ukrainian strategy is still sort of the same as it has been in that they they really want to prevent any kind of like sort of mass panic from happening whatsoever. Um, and I think their kind of assessment of U.S. intelligence and and I guess Western intelligence and, and assessment of the this, this situation as a whole kind of hasn't changed, which is sort of that, you know, if if the invasion comes, we're about as prepared as we can be, but it's not worth like completely sacrificing, you know, normal life in our country, uh, to, to try and like grapple with that in any other way, you know, like Ukraine can't have mass evacuations of its major metropolitan areas. Um, because that would, you know, be almost as disastrous to its economy and to a lot of its people as, as, as a war would be, you know? So it's, yeah, it's it, kind of just, it's this really weird 
indistinct, uneasy wait and see sort of everywhere in the country, um, except for the places, you know, that are on the existing front line um, where there is still a lot of violence happening. Yeah, I mean, you've been, um, you've been, I, I think, skeptical is probably the right word of, of U.S. and Western intelligence about, you know, the imminence of an invasion and, and you know, what, how total that threat is going to be or really is. Uh, do you still feel that way um, about that intelligence <laughs> or has that changed I, about, you know, I am, what's happened? I am getting less and less skeptical by the day. I will tell you that much. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like uh, I, I've sort of heard like through some back channels and stuff that, that, that there are other, uh, you know, national security sources out there that don't think that the intelligence assessment has really changed since Friday, that the basic like state of play is just that the Russian army is poised, equipped, resupplied, reinforced, and ready to mount a full invasion of the country of Ukraine at any point in time. And I, I think, in, I mean, again, not a military analyst, but in my estimates and from what I've seen from, you know, open source intelligence on Twitter and, and just from what I know about the state of things on the existing front line, like, that's accurate. Um, this, this really comes down to if Putin wants to do it, he can do it. Um, and there is, there is, there is nothing that can stop him. Um, you know, aside from an intervention by another major Western military power, which is, which is something that the U S and every other group has said that they absolutely will not be doing. Um, and, 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 you know, they, they shouldn't do because that would be catastrophic globally. Um, it would be complete disaster. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, there will there will be complete disaster. It's it's I guess it's 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 the difference between complete disaster for the entire world or complete disaster for, um, you know, a, a sovereign country full of people just trying to live normal lives. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, my personal assessment of it, um, I was we, we had we had Sam Sachs um call in on the last time and, and he sort of explained his theory, which, which was, which I think was, was reasonably sound was that there was no sort of like realist, I guess, like game theory interpretation in which invading Ukraine on a wide scale, um, on a, a on, on a wide scale would be a smart move for Putin in any way. And I think at, at the time I really agreed with that. And I think to be honest with you, I still agree with that, but the, moves that the Russian government has taken. Um, I'm saying the Russian government because I don't want to just be like the moves that Putin has taken. I don't want to sound like, you know, full MSNBC brain here that like, we're no, just trying to divine Vladimir Putin's mind and, and his whims. But the shitty thing about that is, is that, I mean, I think that's, that's really what it comes down to now. His, his, you know, his speech um, at the, at the end of last, uh, last week or, or sorry, beginning of this week, um, where he basically kind of sketched out the idea that like Ukraine is not a legitimate country, does not have a right to sovereignty and, and, you know, historically demands to be a part of Russia. And even if the West were to meet all of his so-called, you know, like security wants and needs and designs, he would still take the existence of Ukraine as a personal affront. I mean, that really just kind of set home that, it, it honestly is his whim that we're 
that we're kind of waiting on. And if you looked at like the reactions of the rest of the Russian leadership in the country, his own like sort of intelligence chiefs and army generals and, and things like there's a lot going around on Twitter where like a lot of these people were not necessarily surprised, but you could tell that they were just sort of bewildered. Like everyone is along for a ride and it seems like they're truly not to take again, this sort of maximalist view of it, but it really seems like there's, there's only one person who knows how this is going to, is going to play out. Um, yeah. And yeah. So, so that's certainly the situation. Uh, now, now, you know, as I said at the top of the show, you know, we talked to you six days ago while you were in Kiev, uh, and a lot has happened in that time. And I just, you know, I just kind of want to go back a little bit, you know, before, before we return to kind of the present moment and, and just, if you could just talk a little bit about the other reporting that you've done, uh, in, in other parts of, of the country, because you took a trip, uh, from Kiev and then from there, I think you went to, to Kharkiv. Is that, is that the right, uh, timeline there? Uh, no. So we, we left, uh, myself and, uh, I'm reporting with another, uh, another reporter who's also a freelancer like me, um, is on commission. He's been mostly writing for foreign policy magazine. I've mostly been writing for Rolling Stone. Um, but so he and I took a trip out, um, from Kiev down to, to Donbass, which is the, the region that, um, you know, was invaded in 2014. It's the, it's the region that, um, these two, uh, you know, breakaway republics, but, uh, they're, I guess you could call them breakaway republics, but they're technically, you know, just sort of Russian proxy states at this point. Um, that that's the region that they're operating in and the region that they uh, assert sort of full claim over. So we went down there um, to, uh, you take the train to a town called uh, Kramatorsk, and then we got a driver who was able to take us in um, to a, a really small town, um, much closer to the front lines, uh, really only... I think it's about five to 10 kilometers total from the city of Donetsk itself, which is like sort of the capital city of this region. Um, and uh, so we, we were in this town. It's still under Ukrainian government control. It's like right on the Ukrainian government side of, of the front lines. Um, and, and we stayed in this town for, uh, what was it? Friday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday night, I think. Um, and, uh, and, and stayed and, and sort of, uh, lived and, and had meals with and, and went around the town with a family that we met there, um, and talked to a lot of people in the town just to, to see what it was like. Um, and yeah, our, our, my, my sense from that trip, um, you know, I've, I've reported in towns like this, uh, before, um, especially in, in 2015, I've reported in towns like this on both sides, both the, the, the Russian proxy controlled side and the Ukrainian controlled side. Um, and the, the sentiment that you get from people in these places is, is very similar, regardless of which side of the line that they're on. And um, especially now it's really that they, you know, your, your, your hierarchy of needs um, eliminates like politics extremely quickly when uh, you listen to artillery every night. Um, and so, you know, while there's, there's a variety of political views in these, in these towns, like the, you know, the family we were talking to, one of the aunts, like kind of liked Yanukovych, the president who was ousted in the, in the Maidan revolution. And, uh, you know, one of the uncles was like extremely pro-Ukrainian and, and another one was, was sort of more pro-Russian. Like these are things they argue about over the dinner table for sure. 
but their their actual needs are that they they just want the war to stop you know um other people that i've talked to that have done more recent work especially on the russian controlled sort of separatist side of the line have said that like there are very few very very few like true believers in this like dnr lnr uh sorry dpr uh lpr like cause this sort of like idea of Nova Russia and things like that. Um, and, but there's a lot of people who just don't have anywhere else to go or that's their home. And now it's under control by, you know, the, the Russian government instead of the Ukrainian government. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm kind of rambling here. I'm a little, uh, scattered and frazzled today, but, um, the only thing these people want is for, is for the war to stop. And unfortunately it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. But when you were there, was there any like shelling or, or did you see any signs of, of the actual, uh, conflict coming in or was it just this kind of like tense feeling, uh, where, where things were just kind of waiting to happen? Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's, there's shelling every night. Um, the, the first day when we, when we drove in, you know, we were unloading the car and there was a thump in the background of, um. It, it was it was a little ways away. The the shelling while we were there didn't get too close. I would say, probably, um, it's kind of tough. I'm out of practice in like being able to tell and hear like exactly what's firing and where. But um, you know, we heard we heard some decent sized booms. I would say uh, maybe 120 millimeter mortars. Um, maybe some of the the big 152 guns. That's uh, so uh, 120 millimeter mortars. Um, are sort of a large uh but like infantry portable artillery weapon the 152 millimeter um cannons are are usually larger sort of like howitzer style um artillery uh and um under ukraine's various like ceasefire rules that i i won't sort of get into um uh artillery of i i think it was in minsk too it was like larger than 120 millimeter was banned and stuff. Um, but it's, it's been pretty clear that everything is, is in use now. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's happening every night. Um, yeah. And is, is it kind of going from like both sides? Like, like they're just kind of firing at each other. That's, I mean, that's hard to tell. Um, but it did seem like, and, and I mean, my, my, estimate and my judgment would be that there is an enormous amount more fire coming from the separatists from the the russian controlled side um recently and that is what has largely been supported by the reporting of everyone else who's been out to frontline towns all across the entire you know more than 200 mile long um line of contact as it is um it seems very clear that especially since, um, you know, Putin's big speech and his recognition of DPR and LPR as independent states, that uh, he had instructed forces there to kind of ramp up the tension and see if they could get a response from Ukrainian troops. Um, in the in the normal state of the war as it has gone on in the past eight years, yeah, it's, it's kind of everybody shooting back and forth at each other. Um, from From what Others have reported, I haven't personally reported this, but many reporters that I trust have. Um, 
is that Ukrainian forces had largely received orders to stand down as much as they could and not not return fire as much as possible because that would limit the um, limit the opportunities that um, the the Russian proxy forces could sort of like use as a provocation for wider war. I think I think the the order from the Ukrainian government has been like try not to provoke this as much as humanly possible um while still not you know just completely abandoning your your positions um because yeah, they not, don't you know they don't want to give any more any more reason for war i saw i saw a reporting i think i think it was yesterday might have been the day before but it, like there were two kind of different uh things i saw on the on the timeline but uh like one of them was you know somebody was talking to some of the, you know, some of the soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers, and they were like, we're not abandoning our posts. Like, we're going to stay here, you know, like, uh, you know, fuck the Russians. Like, like, we're just going to like stick by it. And then like, maybe like an hour later, somebody else, you know, obviously talking to somebody different, but was like, yeah, they're, uh, they're leaving. They're, they're, they're pulling back because they can't, because in order to hold these positions that they, that they had, like would require, uh, doing something that would kind of be like a hot war and, and provide a pretext for like, uh, for, for more action. Yeah. I, I think, um, I, I don't, I don't think actually, and, and I've seen reports today. I don't think that the Ukrainians are pulling back from those established, uh, front lines. I think they're, they're actually reinforcing them, but I think they are being a lot more judicious about sort of like fire, like not, sending lots of volleys of of rockets and artillery themselves at the moment because they know that that those like you know the the move here is is once these russian uh russian general forces soldiers that move into these areas as quote-unquote peacekeepers you know the the thing is is as as soon as the first one of those is killed by ukrainian outgoing fire right then it's it's on like that is that's the flashpoint, um, and so I think Ukrainian forces are, are very much trying to forestall that as much as possible. Um, I know there's been there's been a lot of sort of like conspiratorial thinking that says the opposite, but if you look at like the direct incentives of both sides in this conflict, like the Ukrainian army can't like they can't win that fight. They can defend themselves. They can. Um, you know, they can maybe mount a guerrilla campaign after Russia has rolled in. But if, if the Russian military wants to invade and conquer Ukraine, it, it can. It can destroy all of those positions with long range missile strikes and airstrikes and things like that. And, and you, so there's there's no incentive for Ukraine to like, as, as has been suggested by the Russian government um, and their various like proxies and supporters, there's no possible reason for the Ukrainians to like mount some offensive to take back Donbass or do something like that, because especially now that they've been, you know, legitimized by the Russian government, um, that would, yeah, that would immediately incur uh, a full on hot war. So, uh, you know, given, given the fact that, I mean, like, as you were saying, I think this is like undeniable, uh, Russia could easily roll Ukraine uh, with, relatively minimal effort i mean like they, like they, like they're the power levels are just not the same at all yeah of the military yeah. um why why do you think 
um, and and I'm just asking you for your opinion here. I'm not I'm not really specifically asking you on any yeah. reporting, but what, but why do you think that uh, that they haven't done that? What, why do you think that Russia has held back? Do you think that it's that uh, they don't really want this conflict, and maybe they want to see if they can de-escalate, or do you think that they're waiting for something uh, to change, or or do you think it's something else, or or what? I, I think this is I think this is the this is the big question that that basically everyone at this point is trying to answer, um, and and that the, the question is is essentially is what what does the Russian government um, and by that I mean essentially you know Vladimir Putin what does what does he want to get out of this conflict. Um, in his various speeches and uh, in in his you know various negotiating tactics and public statements and things like that, he's almost made it clear as if concessions from NATO, potentially even a guarantee like a, a guarantee that Ukraine will not be part of NATO, aren't really enough for him. Um, I'm not sure that now. I'm not saying that the U.S. shouldn't maybe explore those. Um, I don't know if like leaving Ukraine's NATO um, membership on the table is worth Ukraine being, you know, destroyed. Um, I, I, I can't make that decision for the Ukrainian government, excuse me, or for the Ukrainian people, but I don't even know if at this point that would avert this. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, the, 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 that's the question is why hasn't he done it yet? Does he want to do it? Does he not want to do it? I, I don't know. Um, if I had to guess, my opinion would be that um, Russia greatly desires some form of wholesale regime change in Ukraine and a changeover in power to a government that functions much more like a proxy state to the Russian Federation in a similar way that Belarus and, uh, to a slightly lesser extent, Kazakhstan and uh, a lot of these other um, smaller neighboring countries do, um, because that is very much not what Ukraine functions as now. Um, obviously, they've been sort of pursuing closer ties with the West for, for, for many, many years. And there's a whole bunch of history that, that goes into that that we sort of talked about last time. But um, yeah, I, I would say that he's probably pursuing regime change and he hasn't invaded yet because he hasn't decided that um, a full invasion of the country is the best way to pursue that regime change, the best and most efficient way to pursue that regime change. Um, or maybe he wasn't ready for a full invasion of the country. Um, it's, it does seem and, and feel like now that everything is in place for him to do that whenever he wants to. Um, yeah. And, I mean, it, yeah, it is interesting, like listening to that speech because, you know, like, like I'll admit, like I was relatively like ambivalent about whether or not anything was going to happen here. Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of people were. That was I think that was a very sane and rational sort of way to approach this. There were a lot of variables. There was a lot of U.S. hype. There was a lot of Russian hype. It was it, it could have turned into a huge nothing burger at any moment. There's still a chance that it does, and I'm just hoping against all hope that it does. But I I think that chance has has gotten has gotten a lot lower. Yeah, I, I think it was just it was the like uh, the desire to like de-communist eyes it or however however they put it um yeah and and the in in addition to the uh the demand about nato which um i think is 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 something that's 
I mean, that's a reasonable thing for Russia to, to want. I can understand that. But then to also want Ukraine to just demilitarize, um, making that demand in a spe- when, when, when you're surrounding them seemed like this is kind of an impossible thing to ask, right? Like, like this is, you know, you, you can right. maybe make, make the request about NATO and have that go, you know, uh, ha- have that be like something negotiated that, that you could work out. But to then also yeah. demand that they completely demilitarize while this buildup is going on. Um, it just strikes me as like the kind of thing that, that and, and I think in, you know, the U.S. The US did this, and, and I know that these conflicts are not comparable, but they're, they're not the same thing. But, yeah. you know, during the Iraq War, like, they, like in, in, in the buildup to in 2003 and, and in late 2002, U.S. did the same thing. They just kept on making impossible demands until yeah. until the answer had to be no, and then the the, the pretext is there. And I'm yeah. not saying that that's necessarily what's happening here or not, uh, but no, that, I mean I think that, I think that that's a thing was was a lot. That's a that's that's a much better Iraq War comparison to this current conflict than than others have been making. You know, like the U.S. saying like uh, let the weapons inspectors in, let them do you know et cetera, and just kind of ramping up and ramping up and ramping up until. They they were they had like walked themselves into a corner of invading the country. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the you know the 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 left debate over NATO membership um, and and like NATO's existence above all and its and its role in sort of this like global security paradigm or whatever you want to call it is like a very valid one and one that we absolutely should be happening. But I think as far as Ukraine is concerned, the the reasons that Ukraine wants to join NATO are extremely simply, extremely simple, and it's that they want to be in NATO so that they won't get invaded by Russia. Um, and NATO has repeatedly said, you know, well, we're, we're not ready for you to join NATO and we don't want you to join NATO because that could piss off Russia. And Ukraine has said, OK, well, then we might get invaded by Russia. Uh, and now they're probably going to be invaded by Russia. So it's it's sort of, you know, it. it it almost gets absurdist after a while. And I'm just like, I, I don't, you know, I don't know how we productively continue that discussion. Um, and I'm not saying like Ukraine should be in NATO or, sh- or shouldn't be in NATO or anything like that. Um, but the reality of the situation right now is that NATO exists. Ukraine is not in it. And Russia is, is invading Ukraine has invaded, invaded and is, is, is currently invading and may invade more. Right. I mean, yeah, I think at a certain point it just becomes uh, abstract, right? Because it, it's, it's no yeah. longer. I, I think, and we talked about this last time too, like the difference between uh, reality um, and, and I think it was actually when we were talking about NATO uh, with Sam last time, but it was the yeah. same thing. It's like, you know, there are definitely, I mean, I, I would make a lot of arguments against NATO and, and against NATO's expansion. Um, but yeah. those those aren't really relevant uh, at like to this direct conversation because that's not the right. only thing that's on the table. Um, the time, I, I mean, yeah, you know, the but, time to have those arguments and like it would have been great if we could have made some headway and created a, a security paradigm that was better than the one we have now. You know, ten or fifteen or twenty years ago. Um, but right now, yeah, there's yeah. There's it's it's a yeah right now it's a moot point. Cool. So um I I want to ask you a little bit m- more about Kharkiv just um 
just about as a as a city and and as an environment. But I, I would also want to say that anybody who's listening on the app, if you want to join the conversation, uh, just hit the call in button and and we'll take your call. Um, but yeah, Jack, I, you know, I'm just kind of interested if you could just kind of give us uh, a sense of what Harkey. I mean, you were talking about how you were kind of walking around and doing some museum stuff, and um, you know, I mean, first of all, it seems like things are just kind of pretty normal there. Um, but also, I mean, what is the city like? What, uh, yeah. What, what would you compare it to? Uh, how, how has it been, uh, your time that you've been spending there? Um, it, you know, it, it, it honestly feels pretty similar to, to Kiev. Um, it's a nice kind of big city, uh, on maybe a little bit of a smaller scale. Um, I'm staying pretty close to the city center. Like, so it's got a, it's got a river that kind of runs through the city. Um, not as big as, as, as the one that runs through Kiev, but, um, it's, you know, it's a nice, uh, pretty like picturesque and, and, and pretty city. There's, um, we were actually looking sort of in the guidebooks today and, and the central like public square is, uh, I think the, I think I have this right. The second largest like public square in the world behind Tiananmen square. Um, and so like, it's, it's this, this kind of really cool relic of like, you know, grand Soviet era, like public city building um and then you know uh mishmashes of of like traditionalist european architecture and soviet brutalism and and all of these other things um and yeah i i haven't had as much time to sort of just like walk around and like soak up the city as i've wanted to i've kind of been shut inside like working on a few pieces um and then also we uh, i kind of took a day off after we had come back from Evdivka. um had a like day off and just kind of stayed in and like did laundry and things like that. Cause I hadn't, um, worn clean clothes in several days. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it feels, it feels very normal here. Uh, I mean, I'm in the city center. Um, we went out for dinner on, um, what was it? Uh, Monday night, maybe I think when we first got here, it's Wednesday. Um, yeah, we went out for dinner on Monday night, late on Monday night. And when we walked back, like there were a bunch of like young people that were spilling out of this bar and like listening to this, this guy busking on the street. Um, and he was like singing pop songs and stuff. And there was a crowd of like 25 or 30, just like drunk 20 year olds, like all singing along outside of it. Um, you know, I, I'm near one of the big, like kind of modern shopping malls with all the glorious trappings of capitalism in them and stuff. That's all like still like festooned with stuff from Valentine's day and like people going in and out and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, I guess, to get a sense of it without, you know, that there, that there's tension here and that people are tense, but also, yeah, it's, it's the same as Kiev. Like, um, people have jobs in school and class and, and, and errands to do and, and they're, they're doing them cause they don't really have any other choice not to. Yeah. There's, there's only so much stress that you can, let yourself have right yeah you, you can only worry about it so much um and you said that the that the city is uh primarily russian speaking yeah yeah it's um uh harkiv is in sort of like ukraine's it, pretty much as soon as you start to get more um as soon as you start to get east of kiev um most of the cities and most of the, the towns there are really predominantly russian speaking um, a lot of people speak Ukrainian too, obviously, um, especially since the Ukrainians like the Ukrainian government's sort of like nationalistic fervor toward emphasizing that. Um, but in general, yeah, the, the, the primary, primary language, um, 
is is Russian here as it is in a lot of the country. Um, and it, that's that's sort of interesting that those like these like ethnic differences have been played up so much because at least in my reporting and in my talking to people, they don't really often correspond to political differences at all. Like when I was first covering the conflict here in 2015, um, it, it, it was interesting because you'd hear sometimes in the media, like these things of like this conflict between like Russian culture and Ukrainian culture, Russian language and Ukrainian language. And I think that's been sort of like weaponized into this culture war by both sides here, by the Ukrainian government as a way to like sort of ramp up nationalism and jingoism, but also by, uh, you know, the Russian government to be like they're persecuting Russian speakers and stuff like that. But on like a day to day level with the people, it's it's like it's really not that huge of a deal, I don't think. Like I've spoken to people in Donbass who are like. Like I, I, I spoke to a shopkeeper who uh, he was he was 40, so he would have been born, um, you know, while while the Soviet Union um, was still very much existed. And he he was he was from the area, was born and raised there, grew up there. His parents were there and everything like that. And he was like, yeah, like, I mean, I consider myself. He was like, I identify as a Russian, but like this is my home and it's in Ukraine now. And I want to live in Ukraine in peace. He's like, I don't like, I, I don't want to fight for this to be a different country. I don't want to move to Russia. Like I live in the town of Abdivka, which is in Ukraine. And I want to live in that town in Ukraine in peace. So it's, it's not like this like culture war thing. I, I, I have felt for a long time that there's sort of a big disconnect between that and between how people view their actual like lives and their identities on the ground. Right. And like this, that was a guy who was saying, and we'd met several people who say like, yeah, we, I guess consider ourselves like ethnically more Russian or like we speak Russian or something like that. But there was no, like, it, it wasn't like they couldn't say that because they were on the Ukrainian side of the border or that they'd be like persecuted by people in Kiev or, or something like that, you know? When I first got to Kiev in, in 2015, it was very much like, I would say Russian was almost the predominant language in the city. And now it seems like it's sort of shifted to be a little bit more Ukrainian just through some of this like cultural adjustment. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think it's so interesting um, to just think about that and think about how, you know, that stuff can change. Um, like, you know, you know, you're talking about, you know, a, a difference of seven years where uh, the use of language has changed. And there is this kind of idea of a culture war kind of being manufactured maybe by both sides. Um, yeah. Like you're saying, like, you know, Ukrainian government wants to do it uh, because they, uh, you know, there there are there are a lot of obviously political incentives for for this kind of nationalism, um, and then yeah. no uh, Russian government and their proxies want to do it for uh, I mean roughly the same reason, right? Um, but it it is interesting that the the people who you're talking to, the actual people who you're talking to, uh, don't necessarily feel that that's that's the way that it is. Yeah, I, I think I think honestly the the, U, the Ukrainian like the Ukrainian project to form more of a sense of like Ukrainian national identity um, has been 
far more strengthened by the fact that like Russia has explicitly invaded them and blown up a whole bunch of shit than it has by the Ukrainian government being like, we're going to change all the signs on our building to only be in Ukrainian now and stuff like that. Like, you know, a lot of the people in Avdivka and stuff, you know, many of the ones that, um, that, that I, I've spoken to that felt like more pro-Ukrainian, um, like feel that sense of national, like, I, I guess nationalism now. Cause they're like, yeah, I mean, I was a normal Russian speaking person, but like, I was like, I was a cop down here and then the Russians invaded and then the, their proxies like tried to kill me and I had to leave. And he's like, of course I sympathize with Ukraine right now because uh, that was my government and they didn't try and kill me. And the other guys did, <laughs> you know? Right. I think, I think, so, I mean, I think that, like so much of this stuff is like situated. I think that a lot of the time, like, um, and, and I, I'm definitely guilty of this too, but like, um, there's like this tendency to look at, uh, conflicts like this and, and the, and the politics behind them, uh, the nationalist politics and, uh, and, and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the you know, the, dip, the diplomatic back and forth between countries and to kind of think that, uh, you know, everybody in the country, um, feels this way or believes this because they are also looking at it from the same perspective, but, but you're right though. I mean, like the way that it's normally looked at is just in a very, very, uh, simple way of, um, you know, uh, these guys are fucking with me. These guys aren't, you know, like, like it, it, it can, it can often just be like that simple. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. And, and we, we actually, you know, in our reporting, a lot of times we'll ask the question, like, how do you feel about the Russian government versus how do you feel about the Russian people? And, and sometimes you get indistinct answers about that. And sometimes you get people who are, who are pissed off and at, at one side or the other. And that has, has turned into, you know, different forms of like, of xenophobia against various sides and things like that. And, and that's, I mean, that's something that you see in any war and stuff, but I would say, you know, the prevailing, like Ukrainians, like people everywhere are relatively smart. And I think a lot of them realize that like, it's not, and, and I think a lot of the Russian people realize too, like that it's not Ukrainians that like hate the Russian people that are trying to like do a genocide on the residents of the Donbass or something like that. And like residents of the Donbass on the other side, I think realize that like the Russian people don't really bear them any ill will for, you know, being born in or living in the other side of an arbitrary border that was, that was drawn. But they, you know, they, they do know that like there are people in charge in, in Russia, but, you know, also Ukraine who have been incentivized to like play up these differences um, and, and to, to create that conflict. And those are the ones that, you know, should be held responsible for this. There's a very strong sentiment among people who have been bombed recently that like politicians are not great. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Uh, completely understandable. Um, you know, what is, what is going to happen if, um, you know, assume, like, like let's assume that uh, nothing, nothing beyond what has already happened happens, which I, you know, I don't think that that's going to be true, but even, you know, just, just assuming that hypothetical, um, and, and the, the two breakaway regions, uh, are, are actually do break away. What's your sense of what would happen then? I mean, would they become autonomous independent states or would they just be absorbed into Russia? What's, what's, what's the, what's the goal? Um, 
for sorry what's what's who's the the people who live in those territories like 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 the governments like the separatist governments that are that that are um that have welcomed you know the recognition from from russia i think the separatist government's goals in those regions are to do whatever the russian government tells them to do because without the russian government they wouldn't really exist right i i don't i don't really think that they have any like sort of individual uh, goals or, or like dreams for those regions. I, you know, maybe they want to be like semi-autonomous, you know, they, they want like a Chechnya situation. I would say that's probably, that's, that's probably the best they can, they can hope for right now, you know, um, is to be a, is to be semi-autonomous, but Russian client states, um, or I think I think if Putin said, actually, I'm going to annex you, you're going to become part of Russia, like they would, you know, they would immediately fall in line with that as well. Um, but I, it's, it's, it's sorry to interrupt, but 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 given the Chechnya comparison, I mean, isn't it possible that uh, by kind of creating these autonomous breakaway states and recognizing them? that if if the russian government then absor- just kind of just absorbed them into them that then they would kind of face the same kind of resistance down the line maybe a couple of years or- um uh, i'm sorry i uh, say that again my my girlfriend was just texting me cuz she saw the uh, the cnn uh, thing that was like you know a particular risk is the northeastern city of kharkiv and so she just texted me and was like mm, that's uh yeah what's happening <laughs> that's, um, that's where you are yeah yeah uh, yeah, well, well um, so, so so don't worry. Uh, we we won't keep you too much longer, so that, uh, so that you can uh, definitely no, uh, okay. get out of here and, and reassure. But I, I guess the question that I'm asking is that, you know, given the Chechnya co- comparison, um, if these two breakaway regions ended up, uh, you know, being kind of just absorbed into Russia, wouldn't Russia then kind of face the same kind of uh, resistance and guerrilla warfare that they've seen from Chechnya. I mean, is, isn't that a possibility that that might happen a couple of years down the road as, as a, maybe an um, unexpected byproduct of this, or do you think that the two are just not really comparable? I don't, I don't think that it would be if, if, so if those like uh, DPR and LPR were absorbed into Russia, if they'd face the same kind of guerrilla campaigns that Chechnya has, I, I don't think so because I think that, um, the the sort of shape of those conflicts and of those like ethnic divisions are very different um for all for most of this war it's it's gotten much much harder recently um but for most of this war there still has been a, like it's been possible to get in and out of these areas so people who were like really incentivized to leave and go move to ukraine have have had the if if they've had the financial means have had the ability to do that um, it's not, and, and so I, I don't think like, um, uh, like in Chechnya or something like that, there's, there's a, there is a like sort of captive population of persecuted ethnic groups who are being administered to by a government that they do not support against their will in these places. I think it's more so that like in DPR and LPR, there are, civilians who used to be Ukrainian and are now living under a different government administration, but like are not um, like 
you know, like zealously zealous converts to that to or against that government, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think that the um, you know those those who could and wanted to leave left is also an important distinction as well. Yeah, right. To, yeah, to be fair, many of those who who could and wanted to leave, or many of those who wanted to leave, have not left. But those are the people who are like, you know, yeah, old people, elderly people, poor people that don't, you know, have any. Um, any other option place to, to go. Um, but those are also, you know, not like there are not like able-bodied men of like fighting age, you know, that are like hanging around in DPR and LPR, like waiting to like jump into action on behalf of the Ukrainian government. If that makes sense. There's like no, a lot no. of civilians who are there that just like, you know, that want some kind of end to war. For sure. Um, so, so yeah, so I think, I think, I think we'll wrap it there. Um, what's uh, what's next for you? Um, you know, like like I was saying, I mean, in the last six days, you've done a lot. You've been running around quite a bit. You said you had a couple pieces in the works. Um, are you yeah. going to be hanging out in Kharkiv, or do you think you're going to head uh, south or east? Or that uh, is uh, that is that is a great question. Um, I I think as um, I think. At this point, I'm leaning towards spending a few more days in Kharkiv, um, just because if there if there is a widespread invasion of the country, um, that's sort of like you know the news and the story may may come to us here. Uh, we were considering going back down to Donbass again to um, uh, probably not uh, at least uh, I I probably wasn't going to try and go as close to the front line as last time because it's so unpredictable. But at least down to the city of um, of Kramatorsk, which is uh, sort of the largest like metropolitan area in um, in the area that the rebels and Russian government, uh, or sorry, separatists and Russian government lay claim to, but that the Ukrainian government still controls. So like kind of the big city that would be like a turning point as far as like, you know, if they decided to, to make a, a broader military play for that region. Like a target. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, so to maybe go down there, take the temperature in that city, report, uh, talk to people, and report on people um, from there. And uh, but yeah, now now I'm not sure. Um, I think maybe just I I think we're in a we're in a pretty good Airbnb right now in Kharkiv. I think it, it might be smart to just kind of ride it out here for a little bit longer, um, do some more around this area, and and, yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. Cool. And, and you've been, you've been doing stuff for Rolling Stone and discourse, and I'm assuming that you probably have some other stuff coming, uh, for them as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. I should, um, I should have another piece in, in, in Rolling Stone, uh, in the coming days. I mean, I've just sort of been talking to my editors. It's, it's felt for the past couple of days as if we're in this kind of like strange, like lull in the conflict where Putin has, has recognized DPR and LPR, um, he said Russian peacekeepers are going to move into into the region. I'm sure that Russian military units and assets have moved into the region already, um, but they haven't like been super prominent on the front lines yet and stuff. So we're we're very much sort of still in a like wait and see phase. So I think yeah, that's kind of where I'm at too. Is just sort of sort of wait and see, um, and and you know report on things as they happen from there. Awesome. Well, stay safe out there and, and thank you for joining us again. Um, everybody listening, thank you uh, for checking out. If you're listening on the app and you have not already subscribed to the show, 
uh, please hit that subscribe button and follow me and Jack as well. Uh, Jack, thanks again. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll check in with yeah. you uh, the next couple days or the next couple of weeks and, and just see where you're at and follow your work. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Yep, um, yeah. Take All care. right. Bye guys. Cheers.